Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to First Presbyterian Church on this first Sunday of spring. <laughs> it's all a state of mind, trust me. Uh, old friends and new, please kindly pick up the pew pad and sign your name so we can greet each other by first name at the end of the service. Uh, also, if you'd like to talk to a Stephen minister, uh, Alice O'Dwyer is our appointed Stephen minister for the day, and she should be in the back of the narthex. Uh, before we begin our, our service, I'd like to have Dave Testa make a short announcement. Good morning. Beautiful first Sunday of spring. I heard it was Lucian's fault because he shaved his beard and took off the snow tires yesterday. So. Uh, we all received a letter explaining our uh, one great hour of sharing effort in which our church participates every Lent. And uh, I want to take just a minute to talk about that for a second. We've heard over the last two weeks about two of the three ministries impacted by our donations, the Presbyterian Disaster Program and the Self-Development of People Program. Now, the third ministry that's impacted by this, uh, by this donation is the Presbyterian Hunger Program. The Presbyterian Hunger Program is a ministry of the Presbyterian Church USA working with congregations and partners both nationally and internationally to alleviate hunger and to understand and eliminate its causes. Their work supports God's vision of a community where all people have sufficient, healthy, and culturally appropriate food. The Hunger Program encourages families, individuals, and church groups to evaluate their own needs and develop new ways of sharing the world's resources in obedience to the gospel. Now, here at First Presbyterian, we're directly involved in this effort through food programs at Cameron Ministry, the food cupboard at Calvary St. Andrew's Church, and, of course, our own backpack program, where every week we deliver about 40 backpacks containing food to children in School 54 who otherwise might have nothing to eat after they leave school on Friday until they return on Monday. Now, many of you have donated food, money, and your time to this important ministry. But hunger and food insecurity are reality for more than 50 million people in the United States, and nearly a third of those are children, according to the USDA. And by hunger, I don't mean late for dinner. I mean often they haven't eaten for days. A new study by Foodlink here in Rochester finds that 150,700 people in the Rochester and Finger Lakes region don't always know where they're going to find their next meal. And of those, over 54,000 are children. And believe me, that's kind of hard to say. So efforts to alleviate hunger and eliminate its root causes are very critical. So one-third of your donation, as I said before, to one great hour of sharing will be given to the Presbyterian Hunger Program. Nobody should go hungry in this country. No child should go hungry. So please give generously. Worship with us next Sunday, Palm Sunday, and bring your envelope that hopefully you all got in the mail and help us in one great hour of sharing. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, Dave. Bruce, would you prepare us for worship, please?
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let us worship God. Good morning. Please pray with me for the prayer of the day. O God, who fashioned the covenant and sealed it with the promise of life everlasting, we praise you for mercies that are boundless and sure. Your ways are just, your grace is unending. You have sent us the Christ in whom lies your promise that all things will be made new. We come before your throne of grace with the assurance that you will meet us as we call on your name. Hear us now as we worship you and be pleased with our efforts as we respond to Christ's call. (laughs) 
Amen. Perhaps Psalm 51, with which we began worship, is one of the greatest prayers of confession I know. David knew that David had done wrong, and he wrote that psalm. And times we know we've done wrong, too, corporately. And so we use this printed prayer to confess our sin to God. O God of forgiveness... We pray for new life as we confess our old ways. We hear of your promise amidst our own sense of self-doubt. Hope is proclaimed, yet we seek guarantees. Christ calls us not, but we set conditions. When called on to follow, we ask to what end. We applaud commitment, but we treasure our comfort. Forgive our reluctance to walk in newness of life. Amen. O Lord, have mercy. O cry, have mercy. O Lord, have mercy, have mercy on us. O Christ, have mercy, O Christ, have mercy, O Christ, have mercy, have mercy on us. God's promises rest on grace. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Trust the promises of grace. In Jesus Christ we are forgiven. You may be seated. You're going to hear a name in this passage from Hebrews. The name is Melchizedek, one of the great priests of the Old Testament, a high priestly order. I don't know anybody would name their child Melchizedek. I'm sure someone has. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, having been designated by God a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. 
I have the joy of inviting the young people up front. Come on up front. And I need my sixth and seventh graders. So Ms. McElvaney, Ms. Robinson, need your help. <coughs> Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Long time no see, Anna. How are you? Mr. Bachman, how's life? Good job. How are you, Ms. Robinson? I'm glad to see you. Now, the reason I needed Ms. Robinson up here is because I'm wondering if any of you have ever played the game Hangman. Anybody? you played Hangman? So what do you do in Hangman? That's right. You guess letters of a word, and if you get the letters wrong, then you draw part of a person until that person is finally hung. Not the best image in church, but we'll go with it, right? Okay. So I have a great word for you, because most people, when they start to play hangman, try to figure out what the vowels are. That's the strategic thing to do, right? A-E-I-O-U. And that'll get you five body parts if there aren't vowels in the word. So here's the word for hangman that will never be defeated. Ready? Rhythm. Are there any vowels in there? Well, you have to have a vowel to have a word. The Y, right? And the H's trip people up. R-H-Y-T-H-M. Best hangman word ever. Okay? Now, Ms. Robinson, with Mr. and Mrs. Messenger, have you guys been playing Bible hangman? Sometimes you're playing Bible hangman? Pastor Bruce just read for us a scripture passage, and I want to give you the best word out of that scripture passage for Bible hangman. And since you're the only one in the class, everybody else is upstairs right now, you can win Bible Hangman from, ever, from now on. Do you remember what the word was? No. The priest, Melchizedek, okay? Listen to those Zs, that K. Nobody's going to get that one. You've got Bible Hangman assured. Now, who was this priest, Melchizedek? Does anybody know? We hear about him first in Genesis, because he was the ideal priest king. He was actually the king of Jerusalem. And he was the one who blessed Abraham after he had come back from battle. He was considered to be the ideal priest king. The Psalms holds him up as well. Now the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is of the order of this ideal priest king. And we know that Melchizedek had prayed on behalf of Abraham and the Israelites And we know that Jesus prays on our behalf and continues to do so. So the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is just like this ideal priest king that you're going to use for hangman from now on, okay? The other thing that the writer of Hebrews says is that Jesus was obedient and suffered. You guys are too young to have suffered, right? You don't know what suffering is. Does anybody know what suffering is? You know what suffering is, Mr. Bachman? Tell me. What's suffering? You go through something hard that's painful for your life. That's a very wise answer. Well done. You got an answer for me, too? What's suffering? When you're in lots of pain. So you guys do know what suffering is. What are we supposed to do about suffering? How do we get through it? Let's take a look at what Jesus does about suffering. 
What does Jesus do when Jesus suffers? We're going to read next week with Palm Sunday a little bit about the Passion. And one of the passages that we often read in this Lenten season is where Jesus says in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus laments. Jesus gets upset. Jesus says, this is hard, God. It's something that is a life experience that we grow through. And it doesn't matter what age we are, as you guys have just proven to all of us. We all know what suffering is. Jesus responded by lamenting. And we can do that too. We can say this really hurts us. But I want to tell you some secret about Jesus' laments. Eventually, Jesus always gets around to, and the psalmist always gets around to, affirming how much God loves us and how much we can remember God loving us. So it's okay, parents, it's okay when they have a hissy fit. It's okay to be sad and to be tearful and to lament your lot in life. But if you keep your eye on the cross and remind yourself of how Jesus went through suffering, you'll get to the other side and say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for loving me enough to get me through this. Thank you, God, I know you will get me through this. Shall we pray about it? Okay, let's do that. Hold a hand or an elbow or whatever works for you. God in heaven, we give you thanks for giving us hangman words and giving us hang-on-to words like you love us. Remind us that even in our suffering, you know what it's like because Jesus has felt it and you love us through it. We pray this all with confidence because we pray it in the name of your son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Now, Mr. Bachman, you can go to Sunday school along with everybody else, or you can stay with your family as we welcome a new cast of new members into our congregation. So all 11 of our 12 who are here today, I welcome you up into the sanctuary. You know, it's funny, our membership and evangelism team says to one another every year, because we have our classes two times a year, aren't they a great-looking class? They seem to get better looking every class, don't they? Congratulations. Welcome amongst us, friends. Reverend Strawbridge, how's it feel? Wonderful. Great to see them all up there, isn't it? Well, you're going to see some familiar faces and some not-so-familiar faces. Those of you might recognize Oliver Ash amongst us because he grew up here. Yeah, go ahead and get a picture. I got to tell a couple of great things about Oliver. First of all, he refused to do his kata this morning that I wanted him to show me. But if you would like to see him do any kind of karate kata because he does hold a black belt, you can catch him at the Parenton Rec Center on Pittsburgh Rec Center on Tuesdays and at what time? Okay. On the spot. 5.45 to 9 o'clock, Tuesdays and Wednesdays at the Pittsburgh Direct Center. Black belt instructor, fabulous. And this is a courageous young man. He went through confirmation with us, went through the whole process, and said, I'm not ready to say that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. That's okay. We all have doubts, right? Faith without doubt isn't faith. And here he is, saying that it is. And what was your reason for finally saying yes? Uh, I kept going through all the... Uh, 
God's grace on you, Oliver. Just delighted. Thank you very much for your inspiration to us all. So we're also delighted to welcome Mike Mooney into the congregation. His son, Jackson and Max, sons Jackson and Max, have gone through confirmation as well. And Jackson said, Dad, if I'm joining this year, you have to join. So we're absolutely delighted to have you, Mike. Congratulations. We're thankful for your communications and your graphic design and for ways that you teach at RIT. I don't know whether or not you and Chip have actually connected about teaching at RIT. Congratulations, co-faculty members. Welcome amongst us. Absolutely delighted. Katie Gaudian, what a joy to see your smile. This is the most athletically adept woman that I know in our congregation. She, she gives us this lovely ability with her speech-language pathology and her love of pediatrics to show how God continues to grow us. And so, Katie, what a delight to have you affirming your faith again in front of us as a member of the congregation. Absolutely wonderful. So you see three familiar faces, and then there are some not-so-familiar faces. Cindy Barbin, welcome amongst us. Absolutely delighted to have you joining us. She and her husband have a farm down in Menden and a Menden farm stand. When are you going to start sell- opening up that Menden farm stand? Around June. So we're hoping that the hastening of the spring will, will make certain that we have this. Welcome amongst us. Delighted to have the Reitzes amongst us as well. Bill and Meredith, they come to us having had family right in front of us. So this large group of wonderful, boisterous, and happy kids, absolutely delighted to have you amongst us. Bill, with your woodworking abilities, and Meredith, with your connection to your dad through the Christopher Williams Agency. She wasn't here when we were adjusting after the fire, but now she's making certain that all of you who have ice dam claims are getting well taken care of. (laughs) Thank you very much. Laura Bachman, you and Chip are affirming with your three boys, Tristan, Aiden, and Dylan. We're absolutely delighted to have you here amongst us. Laura is studying up at CRCDS. She's, a, she's looking to become a, a, a pastor herself. We're absolutely delighted to have you doing that exploration. And Chip, it's wonderful to have you in the United States every once in a while, despite all of your running around to, take, to make certain that you keep our defenses safe. We appreciate that. Well done, sir. So we're very thankful as well for our folks down here who come with glowing faces. We have new faces. We have faces that look familiar. We have glowing faces. Danielle Privatera, we're delighted to have you and your husband David amongst us. We're delighted that you as a pediatrician will be able to take care of this new baby very well. And we're thankful that we have yet another orthopedic surgeon amongst us because her husband David is an orthopedic surgeon. Welcome to the Trottos, Jonathan and Erica. Wonderful to see that in four weeks you also will be welcoming your, your son. And the, the baby's nursery is Periwinkle, you said? Periwinkle. Periwinkle. They have this beautiful old farmhouse all renovated on Marsh Road and a menagerie of animals already. And Jonathan, because your house is just as colorful, let's see how colorful your socks are. Mr. Signature here, he's got the pocket square and the socks going. So whenever you're being your legal eagle, beagle, you make certain that everything's going to be just coordinated and so. We couldn't be more thankful to have you amongst us and a whole new group of individuals joining our congregation. Thank you very much. We have these questions for you. Who is your Lord and Savior? Do you trust in him? Do you? Will you promise to follow him? Will you? Excellent. Nobody fainted. This is good. Congregation, would you please stand? Do we, the members of this congregation, promise to uphold these individuals on their faith journey? Do we? We do. Excellent. I love that. You know, good emphasis. Well done. You may be seated. 
It is a continuous faith journey, and as you've heard, it's one that we can all help one another on. It's my hope that we will all continue to grow together spiritually in Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? God in heaven, we give you thanks for this new class of members, for your grace that is ever new every morning, for the reminder that you have a love that will not let us go. Help us to rest our weary souls in thee, to be enthused and excited about the ways that you reveal yourself to us, and to be welcoming in all situations so that others might know of your grace. We pray this all with confidence because we pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Friends, welcome. On the last verse of the last hymn, Bruce will joyfully take you out of the sanctuary so that you can have first crack at the donuts, and you all can greet them because they've got a white boutonniere on. Deal? Deal. Welcome. Friends, our Old Testament lesson for today is taken from Jeremiah chapter 31, and I invite you to open your hearts to what God might want to place on your hearts. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
This morning's New Testament lesson is from the 12th chapter of John, verses 20 through 33. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now, my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. The word of the Lord.
Thank you, choir, for making Philippians 2 so real. The desk scant was angelic. The feeling is ineffable. Where are we, friends, as we stand in this fifth Sunday of Lent at the crossroads? Are we discouraged, tempted, paralyzed, parched, or hopelessly lost? Maybe, in fact, we're not so much somewhere as some when. How grown up do we think we are as we let the magnitude of this enormous love story overcome us yet again as we enter into Passion Week next week? Given our being told in the Bible's stories and poetry that we are the children of God, that makes God having the task and responsibility of being our good parent. Sometimes God must consider us to be quite infantile, helpless, and needing everything done for us. Or rather, God might sometimes consider us like adorable little toddlers. Bye, Hadley. Have a good one. Not half as independent as we think we are. And off wandering in dangerous directions, given any possible provocation. Sometimes God must consider us to be like teenagers, unstoppable in our determination that we can go and do something foolish just because we can. Or maybe sometimes God sees us like young adults who can manage perfectly well, thank you very much, but really ought to still be open to the teachings and loving counsel of people who love them, thank you very much. Whenever and wherever we are on our spiritual development, we know that we are growing spiritually when we display what Paul calls the fruits of the spirits. You know this, out of Galatians 5. They are peace, joy, love, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, humility, and self-control. Would you like to know the good news, friends? God knows that we are accompanied by God throughout our spiritual development, wherever and whenever we are. The prophet Jeremiah in today's reading conveys God's promise in the language of a parent of growing children. There was a time, he says, a time of a previous covenant between God and God's people when God had to lead them by the hand. But it couldn't go on like that forever, for the people would, and did, break the covenant. Sound like any of us? So there comes a time of maturity, when the law of right and wrong and the knowledge of God's gifts would finally be placed on the heart of God's own people. And in that maturity, those people would be God's people completely, having God's law written on their hearts, clean hearts, as their psalmist says. Now, why in the world did Jeremiah write such promising words when he's known as the weeping prophet? After all, Jeremiah is the one who wrote the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah is a fascinating character. I think he would be worthy of Ken Burns' notice if he wanted to do an amazing docudrama of Jeremiah's life. Are you ready? Here's your popcorn. Strap in. Episode 1. Jeremiah of Anathoth, son of Hilkiah, was a Judean prophet of the late 7th and 6th centuries BCE. 
I don't know about you, but sometimes I get really screwed up about what those dates actually mean. So 7th and 6th century. That means that Jeremiah was born sometime between 645 or 640 before Christ. Okay? He was prophesying either in Jerusalem or his hometown of Anathoth, which was about an hour's walk from the city of Jerusalem, or he was prophesying in Egypt. Jeremiah's genealogy includes priests. Approximately 300 years before Jeremiah was born, his many times over great-grandfather was King David's chief priest, Abiathar. Abiathar was banished by King Solomon to the family estate in Anathoth because Abiathar backed the wrong king, Adonijah, Solomon's rival to the throne. Now, I know many of you like to do your Netflix binging and you might be watching House of Cards right now. If you think that's political intrigue, I'd like you to step back into Jerusalem at that time. That was political intrigue. Episode 2. Jeremiah breaks from his family's priestly caste, economic security, and trappings to strike out on his own as a prophet. Jeremiah describes his lineage and his calling by God as a prophet in the opening verses of the book of Jeremiah, and I quote, The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of King Josiah, son of Ammon in Judah, of the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of King Jehoiakim, son of Judah, son of Josiah of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of King Zedekiah, son of Josiah of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Well, what that's basically saying, friends, is Jeremiah prophesied for three kings, good King Josiah and two of his sons, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. And he did all this prophesying in a very busy part of Israel's history. Just as we are experiencing today, the Middle East in that day was in a state of political uncertainty and great flux. You see, during the reign of good King Josiah, Assyria, which had been deported as part of the other part of the population of Northern Kingdom, had had that deportation happen in 722 BCE, well before Jeremiah was born. And Assyria was continuing to threaten not just the Northern Kingdom that it had deported, but also the Southern Kingdom, of which Jerusalem was a part. Adding to the intrigue, Assyria, or modern-day Syria, was facing its own pressures from the Egyptians on one side and the Babylonians on the other. The plot thickens. Fade to black, episode three. Jeremiah advises King Josiah through a period of expansion for the southern kingdom of Judah. You see, with Assyria's attention, paying attention to Babylon and Egypt, the southern kingdom had an opportunity to grow, and King Josiah was in the perfect place and time to do that. He oversaw the religious reform movement prompted by the finding of the Book of the Law. Somebody was cleaning out the basement cellar, and they found all these old scriptures, and they said, whoa, what is this? We think it was Deuteronomy. And so they started studying it. King Josiah oversaw religious reform, and for the first time in a very long time, the Passover was celebrated in David's reign in Jerusalem. And in that time, because they had gone back and studied those original scriptures and tried to put them on their heart, the kingdom of Judah expanded for the first time since King David had been on the throne. Episode 4. King Josiah falls. You know it couldn't last, right? 
And Jeremiah falls out of favor with King Josiah's sons. You see, King Josiah is killed in 609 BCE at Megiddo because he hadn't taken Jeremiah's advice. Jeremiah had been saying to him all along, Babylon's going to get you, just you know, let it happen. But no, Josiah thought he could win, so he went out in the Battle of Megiddo and was killed. When Josiah's son Jehoiakim was placed on the throne in Josiah's place by those who had overrun them, Jehoiakim didn't like Jeremiah's advice any more than his father had. So he put him on trial for his life. Dun, dun, dun. Cliffhanger. What's going to happen? Well, Jeremiah was protected by some other people who thought he was very important in Jerusalem, and he lived. Fade to black. We go to the next episode. Episode 5. Even though Jehoiakim had put Jeremiah on trial... Babylon didn't like the fact that he was saying those things. So they moved Jehoiakim out. They put his brother Zedekiah in. And Zedekiah came to the reign in 587 BCE when finally Babylon came and took over all of Jerusalem and Judah. You see, again, Jeremiah kept warning Zedekiah that Babylon was going to do this and not to rebel against the Babylonians, but no, Zedekiah didn't listen. Jeremiah was imprisoned first in a cistern where he would have starved, but some well-meaning individuals moved into into the court of the guard, and he continued to prophesy. Pretty interesting life. All of these ups and downs. Here's the epilogue. Jeremiah flees to Egypt with his secretary Baruch and all of his prophetic writings, and he continues to write there. I find it fascinating. We've had this huge sweep of a life And what it is that we remember from this weeping prophet are these few chapters that are known in the book of Jeremiah as the book of consolation. That's where we have our text for today. Jeremiah writes, hopefully, of a new covenant that will be written on our hearts. And here's what he says. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. Jeremiah's influence through these kings saw the high of Judah's expansion under King Josiah, the waffling of his son, King Jehoiakim, and finally, the overthrow of Judah under King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. Throughout his prophetic career and his priestly heritage, Jeremiah was trying to tell the Israelites that honoring God's covenant was not accomplished by going through the linear, robotic, and ritualistic motions of temple worship. You see, the Israelites fell into this all-too-understandable trap of believing that Israel would never be defeated, just as long as they worshipped correctly. If they just followed the rules, everything would turn out right. Jeremiah was instead trying to tell them that Honoring God's covenant comes about by writing the law on each individual's heart and acting from that deep-seated, life-giving orientation. You see, King Josiah grew out of that understanding. His sons, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, didn't. It makes me wonder, have you ever looked at people and asked yourself how some people always seem to be growing spiritually, but others stagnate or even go backwards. In our gospel lesson for today that Newt read for us so beautifully, 
We hear Jesus once again turning to an agricultural reference to explain the difference. Jesus says, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The old passes. The new emerges. As today's gospel passage in John tells us, the grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies. From it springs the stalk that in time will produce much fruit. And that fruit must in turn die before something else can grow. The circle of life, my friends, is a metaphor for our own spiritual journeys. We're not to cling to the old ways that hinder our ability to realize the hope of the gospel. Letting go of what is withering is tempered by the hope that we will have promise in a new life. We do need to use what we glean from the past. We don't discard it all, but we use the wisdom that we've accumulated. And then we apply it so that we might have a fresh insight and mature in faith. This cyclical understanding of our spiritual growth is documented extensively, and it begins with the pioneering work of Dr. James W. Fowler. Fowler is considered a seminal figure in the field of developmental psychology, along with such luminaries as Eric Erickson or Jean Piaget, whom he respected greatly. Fowler's research demonstrates that there are six developmental stages of faith that cut across all faiths, not just the Christianity that he happens to profess. While he ties those faith stages with the chronological ages of development, here's a key point. One's age does not guarantee that you're also developing spiritually along that faith stage continuum. You see, the chronological ages are these. Infancy, early childhood, childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, and mature adulthood. And the faith stages are undifferentiated faith, intuitive projective faith, mythic literal faith, synthetic conventional faith, individuative reflective faith, and then finally, conjunctive faith. Now, if we want to link those six chronological with those six faith stages, Fowler says we need to do this. We have to consistently encourage a communal environment that helps people live into the dying of their old ways of thinking and reintegrate them into new ways of thinking. Take, for example, King Josiah's own upbringing. He had been taught cultic worship in the temple. He was born into it. And he was made king at the tender age of eight when he began to be shaped by Jeremiah's teaching and prophetic preaching. He likely progressed through those first two faith stages, undifferentiated faith and intuitive projective faith, and was beginning to be ready for that third stage of mythic literal faith, which is where most of our kids in Sunday school are right now, mythic literal faith. But when the old scrolls were discovered, he had an opportunity to read or have read to him and studied with him, interpreting with Jeremiah's guidance the scriptures themselves and how they could be relevant to his life situation here and now. That brought him squarely into the fourth stage, synthetic conventional faith, in which he was forming identity and shaping his personal faith. Oliver, I didn't warn you about this, but I'm going to call you out again. You maturely, young man, were in that synthetic conventional faith when you said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not ready to just stand up and say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. 
smartest man, smartest young man I know that's gone through our, our confirmation classes because he, he fought me on this. He wrestled with me. And I'm proud of you for that. It's that synthetic conventional faith when we're a teenager, when we really do need to wrestle with what it is that we believe and appropriate it for ourselves. The main objective developmentally for a teenager, other than annoying the heck out of one's parents, is to make certain that you're figuring out who you are as an individual, your identity. And that synthetic conventional faith is a place in which we can each figure out our identity as a child of God. Well, the prophet Jeremiah tutored King Josiah, and he had an opportunity, because he was king, to bring along the rest of the population with him. They had an opportunity to have the law written on their hearts and to appropriate it for themselves and to see what it meant for them to live into the character of the Christ, or in that time, live into the character of who God wanted them to be. Regrettably, though, with the death of Josiah at Megiddo, neither the king nor his people were able to progress to stages, faith stages five and six, which would have made room in their thinking for paradox, depth, and intergenerational responsibility for the entire world. Instead, Jerusalem was overrun by the Babylonians, and they got stuck in synthetic conventional faith. And fear took over. Do any of you know the wisdom of the great green prophet? Beware the path to the dark side. <laughs> fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. And hate leads to suffering. Yoda had it right. How do we avoid the path to the dark side? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 51 is one of those beautiful lament psalms. It's a particular subcategory of lament psalm. It's a penitential psalm. And it has that opportunity for each one of us to lament because there is suffering, no matter what our age is. We saw that this morning. Even our very youngest know what suffering is. David prayed that each Lent, and so can we. Even those that we consider to be quite spiritually mature can surprise us that there is still room for spiritual development and growth. Let's take a luminary. C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis. He was a novelist, poet, academic, lay theologian, and Christian apologist. He was born in Belfast, Ireland, and he held academic positions at both Oxford and Cambridge. He's best known for his fictional work, especially the Screwtape Letters and the Chronicles of Narnia, and for his nonfiction Christian apologetics, such as Mere Christianity or Miracles and The Problem of Pain. During his life, he was considered to be very spiritually mature, so much so that he was often invited to be a broadcaster or a lecturer. But scholars have documented the spiritual growth that Lewis himself underwent. A bachelor until quite late in life, he began a relationship with a widow, Joy Davidson Gresham, with whom he enjoyed a very keen intellectual exchange. He often said of her, she's the only person I can have an argument with. The romance of Lewis and Gresham is winsomely told in the movie Shadowlands, starring Anthony Hopkins as Lewis. And if you're, again, looking for something on Netflix, I highly recommend getting that one. Sadly, though, after Lewis and Gresham were married for only a short time, she died from cancer. 
And here's where he grew. Prior to Joy's being in his life, Lewis had written about suffering as being something used by God to bring us closer to God and to promote the greater good of humanity. Now, he wasn't the first theologian to claim that suffering brings us closer to God and was meant for the greater good of humanity, but he's the one who made it such that people could understand it. Here's the difference in the growth. After Joy died, he stopped trying to explain or rationalize suffering. In his gripping book, A Grief Observed, he wisely and simply acknowledges the existence of suffering. Interestingly, he wrote A Grief Observed under a pseudonym because he wanted it to be accepted on its own merits. And many well-intentioned friends sent copies of Lewis's own book to him saying, hey, this is a really great way to look at your grief. Wouldn't you like to read it? Wouldn't it help? As Lewis demonstrated before and after Joy died, even those that we consider to be very spiritually mature can continue to grow. Through all of our development and spiritual stages of our life, one thing is certain. No, it's not death and taxes. The one thing that's certain is we will have uncertainty in this world. One step in spiritual maturity is the acknowledgement of that uncertainty and the pain and suffering that comes from it. When we are able to acknowledge uncertainty, pain, and suffering and lament that which hurts us, we can move forward. We won't be paralyzed, struggling, or mired in our grief. God has given us the enormous gift of his son's example to show us the path of resurrection hope. And God has given us the gifts of the psalmist whose laments permit us to grieve and grow. Lament and lean in. Rail and rally. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. In the coming weeks, there will be many who will celebrate Easter without having many spiritual thoughts. These people will be grateful for a slightly mysterious holiday from work or school and the indulgent traditions that have grown up around it. Who doesn't love a feast or peeps? And certainly I'm going to have my fill of chocolate. Can't wait. There will be many more who will mark these religious festivals with deference and respect. These people will be admiring the stories from outside as observers listening to the beautiful music, soaking up the church's special atmosphere, and enjoying the inevitable happy ending when it comes. But there will also be some people who will put themselves inside the story that's been written on their hearts and let that story plant itself and transform them. These people will be those who listen to what God has written on their hearts and who will seek to grow spiritually They will be the people who have the strange and unfashionable ambition to be clean in their spirit, wise in their hearts, and joyful in the certainty of God's love. They will be enlightened people who love not the things of this life as much as they love the bigger things. Please, God, let some of them be some of us. Spiritual growth does involve struggle, particularly on our road to maturity. And we know we're more mature when we give up our need to receive 
and it becomes replaced with the need to give. A prayer helps us with that. Most giving and forgiving God, you provide for our every need. You open our lips to offer you praise. You strengthen our hands to respond to Christ's call. With hearts, hands, and voices renewed by your spirit, we place now before you our commitment to serve. Use us in ways that will benefit others and accept what we offer as a sign of our faith. Meredith, you had told me about a lovely young lady that you knew in your class for whom we are praying that she passed away this week. Tell me again her name, please. Kim Miller. Kim Miller. So we are praying for Kim Miller and all of her classmates, those of you who are giving her, great, her family great strength and support in this time, and her young children as well. We're also thankful for the ways that this community has reached out to communities beyond our own. If any of you remember Lewis, Lou and Phyllis Wolfe, who worshiped in our congregation for many years, while they're in heaven at this moment, they left a legacy. They created CDS along with several other families, and their own son, Daryl, is a resident and group member at CDS. He was recently diagnosed with cancer, and he's up at Highland Hospital. We're hopeful that God will continue to give, through wonderful physicians and caregivers, the treatment that Daryl needs. 
We're also thankful for the ways that Logos is leading us through intergenerational worship and strengthening and the redevelopment of our spiritual maturity across those spectrums of life stages and ages. And so we'll have a Logos potluck on Wednesday. We're very much looking forward to celebrating the end of this great cycle. And we're thankful for the many ways that God moves through us to celebrate notable events in each of our lives. Please, friends, join me in prayer. Great God of the universe, you open our lips to give you praise. Deliver us from all that prevents us from singing your song, from bitterness towards others, from thinking of ourselves too highly, and from despair when our acts amount to very little and the needs are so great. As Jeremiah proclaimed allegiance written on the hearts of humanity, let us be diligent in discerning the hope of your salvation. Give us humble hearts so that we hear the cries of our neighbors and give us soothing voices to speak comforting words to them. All praise to you, Christ, who puts the song of new life on our lips and taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
I give you your charge and benediction for this day, I wanted to remind those who are curious about what communion means that you can stay after worship today and we will celebrate communion. We'll have an opportunity to hear a little bit more about the sacraments and how we in the Reformed tradition celebrate them. Go now this day in the love of God, the communion and grace of Jesus Christ, and the love of the Holy Spirit this day and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.